Legacy comes from two of the grandest names in horsepower. On this show, we'll share the amazing life of Isabel Di Tommaso, owner of Wood Memorial winner Irish War Cry, plus a stage play to commemorate a two-time derby-winning jockey and trailblazer, Jimmy Wingfield. It's all straight ahead on a richly textured edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the Pink Podcatcher app as well. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. One of the things that makes the Kentucky Derby so endlessly fascinating are the different type of people who wind up connected to it over the years. From heads of state, like Sheikh Mohammed of Dubai, to a modest group of friends from upstate New York. From celebrities like Burt Bacharach and Jenny Craig and George Steinbrenner, to a pair of unknown, raw-boned New Mexico cowboys who pulled off a titanic 50-to-1 upset in 2009. Derby personalities come from all walks of life. Some are successful entrepreneurs like Pandora Jewelry co-founder Michael Lund-Peterson, who last year entered One Lucky Dane. Some are dirt-under-the-fingernails horsemen, like three-time derby-winning jockey Calvin Burrell. But the owner of the Wood Memorial winner might be the most interesting person ever to reach the Kentucky Derby. Irish war cry sidles up alongside of battalion runner midway on the far turn and Irish war cry pokes ahead in front. Irish war cry on the outside has got a neck in front. Battalion runner all out second on the inside four lengths back to cloud computing. Irish war cries in front because they come to the final 16th. Battalion runners not going with him. Then comes Cloud Computing down to the line. Irish War Cry has won the Wood Memorial under Rajiv Mirage. His owner is 86-year-old Isabel Di Tommaso, who has led an amazing life. She was born Elizabeth Haskell, the daughter of Monmouth Park founder Amory Haskell. If the name Haskell sounds familiar, it should. Elizabeth Haskell, though, wanted way more horsepower than a thoroughbred could provide. In the 1950s, when few women dared to reach for the stars, Miss Haskell bought Ferrari race cars and competed against some of the best drivers in the world. That's where she met her husband, Alejandro Di Tommaso. If that brand name sounds familiar, it also should. For some insight into the incredible story of Isabel Di Tommaso, the lady once known as Elizabeth Haskell, we welcome in her niece, Isabel Ellis, here to In the Gate. Where do we even start? Um, Amory Haskell was a successful businessman, largely in the auto industry. He was a vice president of General Motors, handling foreign exports. How much of his daughter's passion and direction comes from her dad? The motor racing is something different. The horse racing is a is really a family affair. Her mother, as the story is told, came to our marriage with a mare and a foal. So, um, <laughs> that, which is an interesting uh, <laughs> wedding gift. 
so her mom, who unfortunately passed away just a few months before Mammoth Park was to open, really was the thoroughbred force in the family. And it's really her passion of raising thoroughbreds and raising thoroughbreds in New Jersey that is what is so evident in both um, my aunt Isabel de Tomaso's love of horse racing as well as her sister Hope Jones's love of horse racing. Well, even before he organized Monmouth Park, Amory Haskell was the man who successfully lobbied for the legalization of paramutual racing in New Jersey at all. Absolutely. They really felt strongly in it, and I think um, I think that was in 1939 they finally got the legislature to overturn, you know, the ban on paramutual racing. And that's when they really started to lobby hard and raise money to build Mammoth Park. And if you think about it, it was World War II. It's fascinating that they managed to get it all done by 1946. Now, you said that horse racing was one thing. Where did the motorsports passion come from? Well, interestingly enough, it's come from a, uh, something that we all know or all have experienced in our lifetime, and that's a crush on a boy. <laughs> it turns out that one of my aunt's best friends when she was growing up, when she was a teenager, had an older brother, and she thought he was the greatest thing, and he loved cars. And so that's really where she got her inspiration you know, in her passion. The boy is long gone, but she took that and she ran with it, you know, at a time when women racing, you know, was absolutely unheard of. Now, that's the thing. How, as a lady in the 1950s, was she able to forge her way into the motorsports world, not as a spectator, but as a competitor? She has a very strong will, <laughs> and she did not see that there was anything that she couldn't do. It's really quite fascinating. She is, you know, colorblind, sex-blind, so to speak, I guess. And she said, if those boys can race, I can too. So she went to MacDill Air Force Base and got her uh, license on the spot in 1953. The joke is that the sports club car of America driver who uh, was to issue the license to her said, please go slowly. I don't want to die during this test. <laughs> so she got her license immediately and was off and running, so to speak. And she competed mainly in sports cars and many prestigious events alongside legends like Formula One champion Sir Sterling Moss. I mean, she raced the 12 hours of Sebring, and that's where she met Alejandro Di Tommaso. So tell us about him. So she had decided that she was going to go race in Europe. She was frustrated racing in the United States. They kind of had segregated races here, meaning there were only racing for women. 
And she thought that that was boring, and there was really no point of doing that. It, you know, they did not uh, showcase her skills. So she got a ticket, and she went to Europe. She went. She decided to buy a Maserati when she was in Europe. And when she was going to pay for the engine for that Maserati, she was at the factory. And that's where she met Alessandro de Tommaso, who was driving for Maserati at the time, and they had mutual friends. And this was a family that had to flee Argentina because of fear of reprisal from Juan Perón? What happened there? So my uncle Alessandro de Tommaso's family had been um, starch opponents of Juan Perón. His father had been Minister of Agriculture, and when Perón came to power, he spoke out against it, and um, needless to say, they were at, he was asked to leave the country. So he ends up leaving his first wife and three children in Italy in 1955, heads to Modena to race, and that's where he met Isabel. Now, Correct. in their first wedding photo, in their wedding photo in the family album, so I read, Isabel wrote on their wedding picture, the company was founded on March 9th, 1957, which happens mm -hmm. to be their wedding day. What do you think she meant by that? <laughs> it really was a partnership. You know, uh, Alessandro was very outgoing, very charismatic, really a genius in a lot of ways. You know, she was behind the scenes, knew, was running the finances, knew where the engines were, knew where the parts were, knew who was working on the floor, you know. So it really had become a, she refused to be anything less than an equal in this partnership from the beginning. Isabel Ellis, niece of Isabel Di Tommaso, joins us here on In the Gate. Now, it must have been a somewhat big deal when Elizabeth Haskell changed not just her last name, of course, in marriage, but her first name as well, with the Haskell name being so prominent in society in New Jersey. How did that go over in the family? Well, um, that is actually a rumor that doesn't exist. It came from uh, the name Elizabeth Haskell came from a bad translation that was done by a Dutchman during a result from one of her races. And somebody took that and decided that maybe she had changed her name. But that actually is absolutely not true. Her birth certificate says Isabel. <laughs> Oh, is that right? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Well, nonetheless, she was designing cars for the Di Tommaso car company, not just driving them and not just watching them. Even if you're not a sports car aficionado, you've probably heard of Maserati and maybe the Pantera. And two of the biggest Di Tommaso successes that Isabel designed had horse racing inspired names, Longchamp and Deauville. So that brings us kind of back to horse racing. How involved did she stay with racing over the years? So my uncle, Alessandro, he named all of the cars, and he believed that there should be a separation between what we're going to call a high-performance car 
And as we jokingly say, the sedate sedans in the family. So he typically would name the cars like Pantera and um, Mangusta after animals. And then he decided that they would name the four-door Deauville um, after race courses. And he believed strongly and and enjoyed Aunt Isabel's racing over uh, horse racing overseas. So she bought her first mare in 1969 at Newmarket, and that is actually Irish War Cry's fourth dam. So she has been racing that family for now close to five generations, or five decades, I should say. We have heard many who are fairly new to horse racing for whom the Kentucky Derby is the holy grail. But I remember back in 2013 when Orb won the race, his co-owners, Stuart Janney and the late Dinny Phipps, whose families had been involved in the sport for, you know, over a century, said that their operation was about way more than just the Derby. Now... Ms. D. Tommaso has been involved in some way in horse racing for quite a while, too. What does the Kentucky Derby mean to her? Well, it won't surprise you that it's a bit of a family joke to say, we're calling this our May prep for the Haskell. (laughs) Um, I think that for every horse owner, this is one of the most important races that they could ever dream of running in. And the chances of actually getting a horse to the starting gate are very, very small. So whenever the opportunity comes around to do so, you know, you sort of think she understands you need to take it. And so she's really looking forward to going to Kentucky and you know, embracing this part of the sport um, that has such a history and tradition, much in the way that the Haskell does, which I'm laughing about. But it's really, it's really that the Haskell date that is going to mean the most for her. And it really does tie back to the fact that this is a racetrack that the family has been a part of now since 1946, and this is going to be the 50th anniversary of the Haskell, and she would love nothing more than to have a horse run in that race that, you know, that is so important to her and her sister and the legacy of their father. Well, Isabel Ellis, what a treat this is. Thank you so much, and the best of luck to your family with Irish War Cry in the Kentucky Derby. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, the revival of a stage play devoted to one of the Kentucky Derby's earliest heroes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. A few long statistical streaks remain active when it comes to the Kentucky Derby. No Derby winner has either added or removed blinkers in his final pre-Derby start. IRAP will try to change that. As many of you know, the last winner that was unraced as a two-year-old was Apollo back in 1882. Always Dreaming will try to break that one this year. Another long statistical drought. 
you have to go back to 1902 to find the last African-American jockey to win the race. That was when Jimmy Wingfield notched the second of his back-to-back victories aboard Alan Adale. The next year, he narrowly missed winning a third straight derby, which no jockey has ever done, a loss Wingfield called the worst of his career. But just a year later, black riders had been virtually banned from major racetracks, including Churchill Downs, as the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision gave legal backing to the South's segregationist laws. It was essentially the end of a period in which African-American jockeys had dominated the Triple Crown. And perhaps the most accomplished and vibrant of these jockeys was Wingfield, whose stories have been chronicled in book form, and now for the second straight year in a stage play called Jockey Jim. Part of the play will be performed at Churchill Downs on April 29th, opening night at Churchill Downs, if you happen to be there. And we are pleased, so pleased, to be joined by the creator of Jockey Jim, Larry Muhammad, here on In the Gate. Now, Jimmy Wingfield was not the most accomplished African-American jockey. Isaac Murphy won five derbies, and Willie Sims is the only one to win all three Triple Crown races. So why did you choose Wingfield as the subject of the play? Uh, I think his career is probably the most illustrious. He was arguably the first globetrotting superstar athlete, superstar rider to come out of the United States. So he won the derbies back-to-back. 1901-1902. Then he went to Russia because of a, a lot of different reasons. He went to Russia, and because he was a better rider, I think they, had, they called it a crouch, and the, the European riders and the Russian riders rode standing up, and they didn't know how to dodge the win. But anyway, Winkfield won all these races, became a millionaire, sleeping on silk sheets, um, champagne and caviar. He had a ballet, and then he helped evacuate the racing community out of Moscow during the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, married an heiress, married a Russian heiress, uh, became a, you know, retired, a prosperous trainer in France before he, before he was forced to evacuate when the Nazis took over France and, and occupied all of the, the stables. And he uh, winds up in the United States in the late 40s, early 50s, at a time when black jockeys were mysterious figures of a forgotten past. Nobody knew. People had all forgotten about black jockeys. And in the play, when the the play opens, he's just a stable boy. And people think that he's uh, lying or he's ridiculous or he's kind of touched in the head, but he's talking about all these victories and all these exploits that he did in Europe. But because of his innate competitiveness and equestrian genius, him and his wife together, Lydia Dominguez, who was a horsewoman, they reclaim a forgotten legacy. And at the end of the play, he goes back to Paris, reclaims his stables, and is invited to the Derby, invited to a, a, a turf riders dinner. It was, I think it was in 1960, and he wasn't allowed to come into the front door of the Brown Hotel. In the play, he gets in uh, because of Roscoe Goose, Roscoe Goose, the longest long shot in Derby history, was a friend of his and kind of made a way for him to get in. But in truth, he had to go through the back door. And he met Roscoe Goose there. There's a famous picture of him and Roscoe Goose sitting alone at Churchill Down because, you know, nobody would pay attention to him because he was African-American jockey. 
first one that went first black jacket women in the 20th century and the last black jacket women in the 20th century. That was 1902. Well, speaking of the 20th century, I mean, this guy, as you mentioned, wound up living through two of the seminal events in 20th century world history, the Russian Revolution and the Nazi occupation of Europe. How did Jimmy Wingfield continue to survive, particularly as a black man there? Uh, well, you know, I think the, the, the demographics were a lot different from what they are in the United States. Of course, the United States got a slave history. So, and talking about sports, I mean, African-American jockeys were the first pro athletes. So they helped invent our first national sport, horse racing, which dates back to colonial days in the 1700s, way before baseball became, you know, the so-called America's uh, pastime. But when he went to Europe, it was like a great curiosity, a black jockey. Many people hadn't even seen African-Americans. And he was such a skilled horseman, like a consummate professional. I mean, he just got uh, accolades everywhere. So helping evacuate the racing community out of uh, Russia during the post revolution is because of his skill and his knowledge. And, and his. he had a lot of backers who were really influ influential European in industrials, you know, Horse racing is a money sport. So you had all these rich people who relied on his his skill and knowledge. What they tried to do was drive 200 thoroughbreds over land like they were cattle, I guess. And he was trying to explain to them. None of them made it. He tried to explain to them that it couldn't happen. But, you know, there was a, a lot of money invested in it. During the revolution, they couldn't ship the horses by train. So... But anyway, yeah, because of his skill and his contacts. And then when he got to uh, Paris, he won a lot of races, you know, retired a prosperous trainer. And it was like Jimmy Winkfield, great horseman, his aristocratic wife, his father-in-law had built them uh, a stable in this little town, Maison Lafitte, which was a horse town. And he had all of these wealthy clients. When the Nazis come over, they take over all of the stables, and they're putting cavalry horses in with thoroughbreds. They're whipping the thoroughbreds. And this is, I guess, the, the line that couldn't be crossed with Wingfield. And he, in the play, he gets into it a little bit with uh, physically with some of the Nazis who are running his stable now. And in, in truth, they did have to, I think his daughter, Lillian, was the first one to leave, and they left his daughter, his wife, and then he and his son. They all had to evacuate and lease their property, come back to the United States. He came back to the United States, a stable boy, and his wife was a domestic. So, you know, just competitive drive, never giving up. But his skill and his contacts, I think, helped, helped him survive. Larry Mohammed, creator of the play Jockey Jim, joins us here on In the Gate. Part of the play will be performed at Churchill Downs on April 29th, opening night at Churchill Downs, if you happen to be there. What part of Jimmy Wingfield's story is going to be shown in the opening night? So this is the scene. You know, his career spans like 60 years. So this is a scene where he's young and vibrant. He's preparing for, this is after he's won his first two derbies. This was just before he goes over to Russia. And he's preparing for a big race. So he's, he's like all athletes, he's got this ritual he goes through time and time again. And he does up some calisthenics, you know, he's, he shadow boxes, you know, does push-ups and all that. And all the while, 
he's calling out the names of these famous black horsemen who are his uh, professional forebears. And he's representing all of this legacy of black horsemen. And he calls out Oliver Lewis, who, of course, won the first derby, 1875. I mean, black jockeys are a rare sight today, but they, they dominated the, the formative years of the Kentucky Derby, winning 18 of the first 25, including the first one, like I said, by Oliver Lewis. And then the third one, William Walker, won 1877. And he's naming all of these guys to get inspiration. And then he talks about winning his first and second derby and, and how he said first derby, he's, you know, there was nothing to it. He just got out front and, and, and stayed there. He was a rapid good horse, broke so fast, I lost my right stirrup, but I fished for it and found it before we reached the stand. And I get a hold of him and do the first two quarters and 25 apiece, and nobody can catch me. Two other horses try to come inside, but I duck straight for the rail. They try to come around, and I take them outside both at once, just a little enough to get them into that sand. And then that boy come up on my shoulder at the 16th pole. I follow him a little. I'm the favorite. They'll never disqualify me, not in this race today. And then he, he prays. He kneels and prays and asks for God's help in making him, you know, come across the finish line a winner, how to pull a horse when his legs get wobbly, how to, you know, if he get bunched up, just drive out the pocket as fast as he can, or, you know, how to just guide a horse, you know, cradle us in the palm of your all-powerful hand, oh, heaven, father, and we'll safely cross the finish line. This is when he talked about how it takes skill and judgment and courage to be the good feel of horses, because you have to study each horse in the race and know how to get the best out of your own horse, how to hold him save him from wobbling when his leg starts to get him down the stretch. And so if the boy come up on me at the 16th pole, I'll foul him a little just enough to get him to that deep sand. I'm the favorite there, never disqualified. You know, it's, it's just uh, he's preparing for a big race, and it shows him at his prime as a rider. What does it mean to you to have this work being shown? Oh, man, it's... <laughs> it's... Uh, Really gratifying. Um, as a writer, it's difficult to get the play produced. Um, I mean, we're not even talking about Broadway or off-Broadway or, you know, just commercial theater. This is the uh, economics of it kind of don't allow most of the time. There's been studies about this. Don't allow most of the time for development of new writers and new work and I became a producer, actually. So the first time the play was done at Actors Theater in 2010, but I produced it. I got the cast and crew together, you know, rented the venue, did the marketing and all this stuff. In 2013, I had written several other plays. 2013, we became a 501c3 of Kentucky Black Repertory Theater, which is African-American bluegrass history on stage. And then we began to get sponsorships. But again, I was producing it myself, which was okay. It was really good for my development as a dramatist to know what a director goes through to attend rehearsals, to have to cast the show, to have to get costumers, sound, light, and all of this stuff. It really helped me grow as a dramatist. But this time, like I say, it's really gratifying. Well, we put it on last year, the full play I'm talking about at the Henry Clay Theater. But it's really gratifying that somebody else sees the value in it and wants to spread this important message or 
Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck with this. Congratulations on seeing this little pet project turn into a big success, and we hope we get to see this in full somewhere very shortly down the line. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate you too, Barry. Our thanks to Larry Muhammad and to Isabel Ellis. What if Vince Scully owned a minority percentage of the Dodgers? Or Marv Albert owned a little of the Knicks? Well, if Always Dreaming wins the Derby, down in the winner's circle will be an announcer who's an owner now for Knicks. Tom Durkin, voice of New York Racing for nearly 25 years and a national presence on big race telecasts, retired from race calling in the summer of 2014 and now is wearing several different hats. He now gives tours at the Hall of Fame since he lives in Saratoga. He's also trying his hand at reading audiobooks. And as minority owner of Always Dreaming, the Florida Derby winner, Durkin wants to see how the winner's circle looks. I give him credit for waiting so there's no conflict of interest, which you see from announcers across the sports firmament. But what of the hardware presentation? Would Durkin feel the need to be both the MC and the trophy recipient? You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the Pink Podcatcher app. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. Remember to join us next week for daily Kentucky Derby reports. But for now, that's In The Gate. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time. Bye.